It is my pleasure to bring back my longtime weather friend, Glenn Field, National Weather Service Warning Coordination Meteorologist, who is about ready to retire. And Glenn said, hey, before I retire, what do you say I come around and we tell some weather stories this morning? So he joins us this morning to tell weather stories. Glenn, welcome back to our studio. Thanks for joining me for today. Retirement? Why are you hanging it up, pal? <laughs> well, thanks, Wayne. Uh, first of all, you've been a great weather friend, as you said, over the years. I mean, just uh, your annual weather calendar, fun facts galore. I see you're even wearing your uh, your Mount Washington weather shirt today. Um, <laughs> so I wore that. I wore that just for you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, first of all, you know, I think 39 years for me is a lot, but. 53 years, congratulations, you know, it's, it's wonderful. All right, for starters, I gave that title, Warning Coordination Meteorologist. You're not the guy that sits there in the office and comes up with partly cloudy the chance of showers. <laughs> you have a different role altogether. What does that title mean? So, yeah, so I'm the Warning Coordination Meteorologist, which doesn't mean that I'm there for every single warning that we issue. Um, <clears throat> but my job is to... Uh, Pretty much make sure that everyone knows how to receive our weather information, how to receive the warnings, and know what they mean and what they do to prepare and protect yourself. So basically, um, I like to say we have another position in our office called the uh, Science and Operations Officer. And that person does everything before the enter button is pushed, making sure that everybody is trained and knows the meteorology of it. And I do everything after the enter button is pushed, uh, making sure that everybody receives the warnings and uh, and knows what to do and what they mean. You know, what's the difference between a watch and a warning, and and um, what do you do if you hear a tornado warning and things like that. So I I am out on the road giving uh, outreach presentations, maybe 60, 70 presentations a year um, to everyone ranging from school children, aviators, mariners, emergency managers, the media, the Red Cross, uh, everyone is our customer. Um, so it's, it's kind of a customer service position where everyone is your customer. <laughs> right, let me back up to one thing you just said. And do you think that maybe one of the biggest challenges in the communication in your role is getting people to understand the difference between a watch and a warning? Just give an example. If we have a tornado watch for today, we don't. <laughs> example, if we have a tornado watch for today, how does that differ from a tornado warning for today? So I like to tell people, um, which is worse, a watch or a warning? Um, if, you're, if your mother says to you, I'm warning you, <laughs> that's pretty bad, right? <laughs> so a warning is worse than a watch. A watch means that conditions are favorable for the development of said phenomenon, uh, in and close to the watch area. And that's not necessarily in the watch area. There could be a little bit outside the watch area. Uh, but it means go about your normal day's activities. Um, for example, a severe thunderstorm or a tornado watch. Conditions are favorable for the development, in the case of a tornado watch, of not only severe thunderstorms, but maybe even a tornado. Um, but uh, if the temperature only gets to 85, for example, um, instead of 90, then it may not materialize. Uh, the, uh, 
But if you hear, it just means, you know, be prepared. But if you hear a warning, that means that we've seen it on the radar, uh, and it's definitely coming. People want me to ask about the Chaplin non-tornado and the Scotland tornado from six days ago. When the Chaplin event took place, that was on a Saturday evening, about 725, I think it was, and there was an actual warning issued for that one. And in the National Weather Service report, it said confirmed tornado. Can you back up the truck on that and tell me how that whole thing played out that night? Sure. Uh, so, uh, first of all, we have Doppler weather radar, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that as the morning progresses. But um, Doppler radar tells you not only how hard it's raining, but but you can see the uh, velocity inside the storm, what's coming toward and away from the radar. And so when we see uh, certain uh, patterns in the reflectivity, such as what's known as a hook echo, for example, uh, that means that the rain is curving around probably because of a tornado, but not always. Um, uh, every uh, tornado has a hook echo, but not all hook echoes have tornadoes. Um, uh, but then when you look at the velocity, you can see uh, what's coming toward and away from the radar. And, of course, you're looking at it not at the ground. You're looking at it, you know, several thousand feet up. And the farther away from the radar, located out in Norton, Massachusetts, you are the higher up into the storm you're looking. So in, around this area, we're looking maybe four or 5,000 feet up in the in the cloud, which is not that high, considering it could be a 30,000, 40,000-foot storm. Um so when we uh, so another thing though that we see on the Doppler radar. So in that case, we we saw a tremendous rotation, and I remember working it, and we saw about ninety to a hundred miles an hour of rotation uh, in that storm, gate to gate, meaning one one pixel right next to the other, uh, inbound and outbound, and so that prompted the tornado warning for sure. Um, but again, not all tornado warnings, uh, the tornado doesn't necessarily reach the ground. Now, originally, when we looked at it, we compared it to what's, this gets, this is the most complicated I'll get this morning. Um, you promise? <laughs> <laughs> something called the uh, correlation coefficient, which, uh, or CC as we call it. Anyway, uh, what that is, make it real simple, the Doppler radar actually can tell you how, uh, what the shapes are of uh, the phenomena. So like a raindrop is a very uniform kind of shape. And so if it's raining everywhere or snowing everywhere, it comes back with almost 100% correlation because they're all the same. Uh, but when we start seeing it drop to something like 75 80%, that means there are other things going on, probably like um, trees being lofted into the air, um, or buildings or, or furniture. Um, uh, people. But it could also, hopefully not people, <laughs> but it could be leaves, you know, um, not necessarily whole trees, uh, especially, you know, as we uh, are fully leafed in the summertime. Uh, so um, when you see that lowering of the uh, correlation coefficient, we call that a, a tornado debris signature, a TDS. And 
<clears throat> we, in, in, of course, we're very busy in the office, and we're looking quickly at the CC, and we saw a lot of lowering uh, in those values and went out and confirmed that it was a tornado uh, because the implication was that there was stuff uh, being lofted into the air. But there was no now, actual funnel cloud sighting, or was there? There actually was, but not. we didn't know that at the time. Uh, that came in and, and, in fact, was a very large funnel cloud, uh, made its way all the way from uh, the Mansfield or, uh, Manchester area all the way out uh, to the Rhode Island border. And that was an, a, an incredible funnel cloud. An important thing to bring up, too, and I learned this from the four spotter training sessions that I've been to, and you were there for most of those, <laughs> but that a funnel cloud... Doesn't right. it's not a tornado until it's the ground, right? A funnel cloud exactly. under the ground is not a tornado. Exactly, it's a violently rotating column of air, but when it's in contact with the ground, we call it a tornado. When it's not in contact, it's a funnel cloud, and and it can go from funnel cloud back to tornado and back to funnel cloud. It's just whether it's in the air or not. And of course, looking at the Doppler radar, we can't tell, but the potential's there when it's as strong as it was. And so this turned out, um, so I did the disaster survey on that afterwards, and we went from town to town. We even had the Civil Air Patrol flying overhead, and they gave us... Uh, and drones, too, right? Drones, yeah. all kinds of things. And um, there's a whole team of us that went up and down every street in every town. And the most we found were uh, one or two trees, um, or maybe three trees in total. <laughs> in the entire event, and that could just be regular thunderstorm winds. Um, certainly not a tornado, and yet the, we have videos of that funnel cloud, and it was just off the air. So we're very, 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 very lucky that that didn't come down with over 100-mile-an-hour winds somewhere. Um, so after the fact, though, even a couple of days later, we went through the radar imagery, and... In the heat of battle, we had seen that lowering of the uh, of the correlation coefficient, but um, in retrospect, looking at it all, uh, there was a lot of lowering of the there. Uh, there's just a lot of noise over the entire area, and so it wasn't really distinguishing that particular storm as having a lowering. And there's actually another thing I lied. This is the, the most complicated thing um, called spectrum width. And um, in the case of a, a isolated tornado, you'd expect to see some change in that where it would be more, uh, more spectrum width, uh, a, a lot of um, uh, turbulence, as it were. And we didn't see that either. So we, we actually came out and, and admitted that we we had incorrectly um, assessed that this was a, uh, a tornado debris signature. Now, that's totally different than what happened just a few days ago in Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Five of them that day, including <laughs> the one in Scotland. We'll discuss that one later on. Let's uh, split this stuff up a little bit and just back, get back to what Glenn does and how your title of Warning Coordination Meteorologist is different from another position in your office called the Science and Operations Officer. Wow, what's that? <laughs> so the two of us are, are, are uh, 
<clears throat> kind of second in charge of the office when the meteorologist in charge or MIC is out of the office, um, then uh, we have that responsibility. Um, <clears throat> and um, we'll throw around a lot of acronyms this morning, by the way, you know. Um, and so you know, the, so what the government and the military does. Well, I work for NOAA, right, which... Of course, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Oh, I thought it was the guy with the ark. <laughs> well, no, no, NOAA. <laughs> but we sometimes refer to it as the National Organization for the Advancement of Acronyms. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> we uh, so as I m mentioned a minute ago, the Science and Operations Officer does everything before the enter button is pushed, and interfaces with academia, and um, actually have some professors come in our office, teach us uh, new equations uh, or even old ones um, and new technology. Of course, our software is always changing and, and he's training our staff on that. And, um, you know, uh, it's, that's science and operations. So he's equally involved in the operations. Now, I mentioned I've been to four of your spotter training sessions. One was at Wyndham High, one was in Canterbury, one was in Tolland, and one was at E.O. Smith. During the pandemic, you went virtual with some of those. You still had them. Are you back to in-person now, and will those continue as they did pre-pandemic? Yes. Well, first of all, they're they're finished with, for the season. Um, if you're interested in being a spotter, you look at our website, weather.gov slash Boston. And on the right-hand side, uh, on their local office programs, there's a, a section called Skywarn. And so that's where you would look for next year's training, which is usually in the spring months of generally March through June. Is that and because it's before tornado season? Yes, um, severe weather season. Um, that That's really where we need the most observers. We have you know, lots of uh, snow observers and, and things like that as well. But anyway, the, the, we have gone back to um, the uh, in-person training, but uh, still a mix, um, a few virtual sessions. Um, so our Skywarn program leader will be announcing those new sites in the spring. Well, I'm a card-carrying uh, Skywarn observer here, uh, th and those things are great. You may not necessarily want to be an observer, like a lot of us are around this neck of the woods, but they're just fun. You, you, you have slideshows, you tell stories. I remember one in particular, you talked about the 1995 Great Barrington tornado. That was a biggie out there in uh, western Massachusetts, and they're, they're just very informative. So they're a, they're a good right. way to learn about the weather. And then, and then also, you teach people about identifying the difference between a shelf cloud, a wall cloud, things right. like that that help you identify tornadoes. Wow, you really did learn a lot. <laughs> well, that, well we, look, I went to four of them, so I better, some of that stuff should have stuck. Right. It's very important because the um, for every severe thunderstorm watch we have, we must have you know, five or six well-intentioned but um, not accurate reports of funnel clouds. And if we were to issue a tornado warning or anything based on those reports, nobody would believe us when the real ones happen. And uh, a real-time report, even if you don't think it's that important, of just, uh, you know, pea-sized hail, for example, um, we can look at the radar and say, wow, they're getting pea-sized hail there. With this signature, it looks like they must be getting golf ball-sized hail there. Well, that's another thing that you teach us, that you don't say marble-sized hail, <laughs> because there's lots of different sizes of marbles. So you use coins as one of the ways that you identify size of hail. Correct. <laughs> uh, 
Simple as that. Dime yeah. size, quarter size, things like that. Glenn, what did you do before joining the Boston office of the National Weather Service? My career started out, first of all, education-wise. I, I got uh, my bachelor's degree in meteorology and economics um, from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I like to, to joke that the two sciences you can't predict. <laughs> but um, that was back in 1983. And um, got interested in the combination of the two when they were coming out and, and hiring uh, from some private companies, for example, that could, if you could forecast the freeze on the Florida oranges or the commodity futures, things like that, that's kind of the connection with economics. But anyway, uh, I continued on and got my master's degree from Wisconsin uh, in 1988. And so position-wise, though, in, in between the two, I had four summer jobs. Um, and for those budding meteorologists out there, it's very important to uh, try to get your foot in the door um, as best as you can. Um, the Weather Service has trainee positions. Um, in the in the summertime, they're not paid. Um, but back in the 1980s, they were paid positions, and I got um, <clears throat> my first one was working at the uh, Weather Service office in Jacksonville, Florida, in 1981. I learned how to take observations and passed all the requirements for that. But then they dropped their program, and the following summer, uh, I was hired out in Redwood City, California at the uh, Satellite Field Services Station, part of uh, NESDIS, that's the National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service. Here's Told you there's a lot of acronyms. Here's useless information. Isn't Redwood City where Ampex is based? Don't know that. Uh, I, I think know. they are. <laughs> you know, Ampex was a big name back in the days of analog and reel-to-reel, and I believe that's where their headquarters are or were. Well, that was where the San Francisco forecast office was. Now they're out in Monterey, California. But anyway... Um, not a bad place, by the way. <laughs> Take a little walk on the 17-mile drive and you're in your breaks. But for me, it was like, um, do you want to forecast, um, you know, fog and low clouds or low clouds and fog? <laughs> June, um, June gloom out there. Throw in a couple of fires. Um, but, it, you know, the weather changes elsewhere in the country a lot more, and that was you know, more of my interests. Um, but it was great for a summer job. And then I also uh, moved on there uh, to the, uh, in Washington, there was the Satellite Applications Lab, continuing with the satellite theme. And uh, and then I moved within the same building. It's called the World Weather Building out in, in Camp Springs, Maryland, which is now out in College Park, Maryland. Um, but anyway... Uh, moved into what's called the synoptic analysis branch where they do satellite precipitation estimates and things like that. So I had one job in the weather service and three in the satellite service, all part of NOAA. Um, and that was before graduating. Um, so then a permanent job came up in the uh, satellite, uh, uh, so the synoptic analysis branch in, in um, Washington. And so I took that for three years, and then I realized that you can actually become branded as a satellite meteorologist, and I wanted to be a forecaster in the weather service. So I did everything to try to uh, apply to uh, 
uh, out of NESDIS and into the National Weather Service. And um, I got rejected from my fair share of stations, um, but then uh, ended up getting uh, a general forecaster at the Milwaukee, Wisconsin office in 1987. And if you were listening closely to my timeline, I said I got my master's degree in 1988. That's uh, So I had taken the permanent job before finishing my master's. And I said, this this comes up, you got to take it. But as, as luck would have it, uh, at, had I gotten any other job, I would never have been able to go back and forth from Milwaukee to Madison and finish my master's in 1988. And then what was the inspiration to get you to, well, at that time, I guess it was Taunton. Now it's Norton, Mass., the Boston office of the right. National Weather Service. So then, uh, so as I'm a forecaster in Milwaukee, they came out with uh, this. They were talking about new positions that would be called the Warning Coordination Meteorologists and the Science and Operations Officer that we talked about before. And that was very appealing um, with uh, not only, uh, how shall I say, out of most of the shift work, um, still work enough shifts to be dangerous, but, um, but more interfacing with the public and, and um, you know, dealing with severe weather and preparedness. And um, so that was something I wanted to work toward. And, of course, the grade level, that was, was uh, high enough that you had to become a, a senior forecaster first. And so I uh, applied and became a senior forecaster in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, from 1990 to 1993. So three years in Milwaukee, three years in Raleigh, and then, um, then I became the morning coordination meteorologist, like had been my dream. Uh, back in 1993, um, the original, the last of the originals in our eastern region of the National Weather Service uh, from 1993 till tomorrow. And you talked about training. Tell me about 2023 for a student, let's say high school, even middle school for that matter, who is interested in the weather, who might want to do what you do or what your partners do in Norton, Massachusetts, or TV weather, radio weather, Pat Pagano, any of that kind of stuff. If someone wants to get into the field of meteorology right now, A, what do you recommend? And B, is there a good future in that profession for people that are right now in the formative stages? Well, um, okay, so I, what I would say is uh, it's always great to follow your dream, right? I mean... I've always wanted to do it, but it doesn't come easy. You have to have excellent grades, really be dedicated to math and science and English. And so in high school, for example, uh, strongly recommend by the time you finish high school that you have uh, taken uh, calculus in your senior year. And because you'll need three or four courses in it in, in college. Um, uh, we don't just stick our finger out the window. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the other thing, uh, you know, uh, an earth science, chemistry, that type of thing. Um, but I, I also said English because uh, very important. Uh, you can be the, the best forecaster, but if you don't speak well English, um, you know, we have to know when to hit it really hard in a particular statement, when to not get everyone overly excited, um, and to explain things clearly. 
And so English is very important as well. Um, so then when you go to college, I highly recommend looking at a double major like myself. Um, <clears throat> meteorology jobs are not the easiest to find. Um, uh, so you need to go to a school that is has a good reputation for meteorology, is well known. Um, and... Um, uh, many different things combined with meteorology. I would say the best one would be meteorology and computer science because there's just so everything runs on computers. Um, that's kind of a tough double major. It may take five years in some places. Um, but uh, you know, there's there's meteorology and communications, meteorology and journalism, meteorology and 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 if you can't find a job in meteorology immediately. Um, then you have another field to go into, um, at least for the time being. Drop a couple of colleges who seem to have the best track record as far as producing meteorologists. I got a couple in my head here. I want to hear what you say before I drop mine in, though. Well, I'm not sure I should actually <laughs> uh, talk about All right. private companies. <laughs> well, I didn't, mean, you know, I didn't mean private companies. I meant schools. Well, schools, I mean, they're, you know. Penn State's good. Mississippi State. Probably right. people wouldn't think of that, but that, a lot of people come out of Mississippi State. In fact, a guy that used to fill in for me in the morning, Columbia guy, Columbia, Connecticut guy, uh, Brian Lapis, he was working in radio, but he wanted to, this is after he graduated Syracuse, he wanted to get into weather. And he took a correspondence course through Mississippi State. He's now the lead forecaster on the NBC station in Springfield, Massachusetts. Been there for a long time, and he loves it, and he's good at it. He's got a really good uh, personality to, to do the thing on TV with the weather. There, but uh, Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, I suppose if I list <laughs> many of them. Here in New England, um, you know, we have uh, Linden College up in Vermont. L Linden State, uh, Linden yeah. State, uh, and um, UMass Lowell uh, is another uh, one with a good program. There's Plymouth State College uh, in New Hampshire and uh, State University of New York at Albany, uh, or I think they what do they call it Albany University now, something like that. SUNY uh, Albany, I think. SUNY or, Albany. Yeah. Uh, so those are ones that come to mind in New England uh, for graduate programs. Is the uh, the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Um, uh, but you know, farther away from the area, is some very well known schools, like I said, Penn State. Uh, University of Wisconsin, there's um, St. Louis University, uh, uh, University of Florida, University of Oklahoma. <laughs> um, actually, the best thing you could do is go on the American Meteorological Society webpage. Uh, and they have a listing of education. They list all the schools in the country that have meteorology programs. Glenn Field, our guest, National Weather Service Warning Coordination Meteorologist. Glenn, how did you first get interested in the weather? Oh, that's my favorite topic. Uh, so <laughs> my my uh, my parents were divorced when I was one. Um, I don't know. They took one look at me, and he went to California, and she stayed in New Jersey. Um, but um, <clears throat> so I lived with my mother, who was an elementary school music teacher. And as it turns out, uh, she got me singing in the choir, acting in the plays. I was in My Fair Lady and Oliver and um, being in front of people. 
What role? And, what role in My Fair Lady? <laughs> I was one of the Cockney Quartet. They liked my okay. voice. And what um, role in all of But I couldn't dance, so they had me like uh, <laughs> just putting my arms out <laughs> and having everybody else dance in the middle. Um, and in Oliver, I was one of the Fagans gang. Just um, actually multiple roles and to keep uh, changing costumes and um, <clears throat> and. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun, and you know, I love singing. I was in the barbershop quartet. I was in my college choirs, um, and so uh, now my dad was a ship's meteorologist in the Navy, a chemical engineer in civilian life. And so when I visit him on the weekends, originally he lived in Philadelphia until he moved out to California. But anyway, when I would visit him on the weekends, he would teach me all about the weather. Maybe not the smartest thing, kind of going out outside when there was lightning to, to you know, to say, uh, ooh, that was a juicy one, you know. Or, well, Ben Franklin flew a kite in the lightning storm. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but, you know, he taught me when you count to five from the time you see the lightning to the time you hear the thunder it's a mile away because of the speed of sound and so um a lot of i learned a lot about weather so all all the uh science from him and the being in front of people's side from my mom and my career became a complete combination of the two of them which is i'm very proud of that and you look back good decision to get into the weather field absolutely (laughs) it's a lot of fun i still can't believe i get paid to do it when you look back on your career, I think it was, what, 39 years? Is that what you said? 39 years. 39 what? years altogether. That's what the pension comes out to. But uh, and my first paycheck was 42 years ago in a summer job. What do you see as the biggest accomplishments you've had in those 39 or 42 years? <laughs> so, well, there's a, a lot of things. Um, the... Uh, the goal is to save lives and property. So um, I feel like whatever I did that could make people survive <laughs> and um, uh, you know really understand the weather and and take things to heart may have saved some lives. And so one program the Weather Service has is called Storm Ready. And uh, so we have several towns uh, across southern New England that became um, what's called um, recognized as storm-ready as as opposed to certified. Some places are afraid to be uh, certified as storm-ready. What happens if somebody actually dies in the town and they're supposedly storm-ready? Well, nothing says that... um, you know, uh, you can't have big storms. You can never be storm-proof, but you can be storm-ready. And so uh, the program is great because we, we work with individual towns and have police and fire talking with each other and and um, everybody uh, having a plan in place to, to uh, disseminate the warnings throughout the town and amongst the first responders. And um, so here in Connecticut, a few examples are uh, Glastonbury, uh, Bobby DeBella is the uh, uh, EM director, has done a fantastic job there. Um, Don Janelle over in Manchester, uh, 
We have storm-ready commercial sites, such as Six Flags Theme Park in Agawam, and, uh, and here in Connecticut, ESPN has their own uh, community of about 5,000 employees in, in Bristol, and uh, they have their own weather detection, uh, lightning detectors, and, and ways of notifying their own uh, people. So that's called a storm-ready commercial site. Um, but my biggest achievement was the original question was in the state of Rhode Island. Um, we had the entire state of Rhode Island storm ready. Uh, so the governor uh, and uh, the emergency management director worked to uh, create a, a way uh, for every individual town. There's 39 independent towns in Rhode Island, um, and they all met the same criteria. They, they purchased weather radios uh, and lightning detectors, four of them. So each person, each um, athletic coach would have a weather radio, uh, I mean a, a, a lightning detector and things like that. And so, and a plan in place. So we it took about a two or three year period, but we got actually every town in Rhode Island storm ready. So there are other states that are storm ready, like Delaware. There's three counties in Delaware, and each county is storm ready. But that's not the same as like Rhode Island is is um, storm ready down to the individual town. Um, so that, that was a really big achievement. And we had a big ceremony at the state capitol building with every one of the town directors holding their storm ready sign up. I think that was one of my biggest achievements. One of the areas that has it is the Six Park Six Flags Theme Park in Agawam. And I would think that's important for them because they don't want to have some severe event like a tornado and people are riding a Ferris wheel. So how do they contribute to the storm ready system? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they are one of our uh, commercial sites and <clears throat> they have a tremendous plan in place. So that's the good news. When you go there, you should feel uh, confident. Um, they have their own lightning detection system, one that's really sophisticated, kind of like golf courses have. And uh, they start shutting down the Ferris wheel when lightning is within 10 miles of the site. And uh, also, uh, you know, other other tall rides, uh, roller coasters. And throughout the park, they have what look like rocks. If you look, if you ever look, there's like 250 of them. And they're actually loudspeakers um, that uh, are controlled from the dispatch center. So if they have a severe thunderstorm warning, they can announce to everybody in the entire park to seek shelter. Now, probably can't get back to your cars, but at least you could go into a restaurant or something like that. Storm Ready, one of your biggest accomplishments. And how about running the Southern New England Weather Conferences 23 years in a row? Who goes to those and what do you talk about? So that's another uh, good accomplishment. Um, Southern New England Weather Conference is, is not a stuffed shirt conference like some professional uh, uh you know, things that cost hundreds of dollars. Uh, this is a, a joint effort between the National Weather Service and the Blue Hill uh, Observatory Science Center. Uh, kind of we make the agenda and they run the conference, basically. Um, but we uh, we pride ourselves on the fact that it's been... Um, uh, the, the audience is uh, the general public, students, 
and they can sit right next to their favorite TV meteorologist. You know, you got somebody from Linden going to, uh, you know, sitting right next to what, Harvey Leonard before he retired, for example. Um, and uh, the talks aren't over anybody's head, and we've had great, amazing speakers over the years covering just about every subject I can think of. Um, we've had, you know, famous tornado chaser Reed Timmer uh, brought his armored chasing vehicle. Um, we had the helicopter pilot from the actual perfect storm that performed rescue missions. Talk about that. That was pretty enthralling. Um, we had the emergency management director from the little town of Van Wert, Ohio, come and that that was one of the big success stories from from storm ready uh that little town had done everything uh to become storm ready right at the beginning of the program back in 2002 and that was in may and little did they know that their town would have an ef4 tornado uh run right through the town in november and but the, they had their plan in place. They had bought a weather radio for the movie theater, and people were sitting in the movie theater when this warning came out. Now, granted, it's the Midwest, and they had 28 minutes of lead time on the tornado warning because they have really big ones out there. Um, but uh, the, the the EM director contacted the movie theater as was in the plan, told them to get to the reinforced bathroom, and so everybody that had been watching the Santa Claus two was safe in the reinforced bathroom, and there's pictures of cars on top of the seats. And you touched on the perfect storm. That was the 91 storm they made the movie about. This was real life, though, when the storm actually happened. Right. Uh, I think it was the... <laughs> trying to remember the Andrea Gale, the uh, yeah. uh, fishing vessel went out and uh, ended up in, in 100-foot seas uh, with with combination of high pressure to the north and a storm coming up from the south and Hurricane Grace all mixed in with each other. Yeah, I read a lot about that movie, and they did try their best to keep it as meteorologically accurate as possible. The only thing they didn't do, the thing that was wrong, they kept the boat on the water way longer than it probably survived because of those big surf, the big waves you talked about. But if the boat sinks two days earlier, there's no movie. So they kind of kept it out there, and then they... Mm -hmm. They also think that the portrayal of the boat eventually capsizing in the wave, the wave was much bigger on screen than it was in real life. And the director was asked about that decision, and he basically decided he wanted to go Hollywood on that one. It was pretty dramatic, but I don't think the wave was quite as big when the boat actually sank. There probably were waves that big later on in the storm. I was really big into that movie, as you might expect. I'll get back to your accomplishments here in a second, but I do want to talk about a very important local event that took place six days ago, and that was the morning tornado in Scotland. As I recall, there was no tornado warning put out for that one. So did that surprise your people? Why was there no warning? Was there any kind of a severe weather warning that day, not a tornado warning? And then we'll talk about the aftermath and the inspection, the investigation later on. Well, I figured you'd ask some tough questions. Um, so <clears throat> first let me describe uh, what I sort of alluded to, uh, the Doppler radar. Uh, out in the Midwest, we get these gigantic storms that are 50 pixels of inbound velocity and 50 pixels of outbound right next to each other in these large tornadoes. Here in New England, this is not like an excuse, um, but, but it is a fact that a lot of ours are just so short-lived and small that, um, that they're only on the, the scope for maybe two scans 
and there was like one pixel inbound and one pixel outbound. Now, on that particular day, we knew we had strong winds aloft, a lot of wind shear, but not a lot of instability. Uh, so we were in the back of our mind thinking there could be a low chance of a tornado somewhere. Uh, but the big emphasis was flash flooding that was going on. And we had flooding and flash flooding. And our uh, people were issuing flood and flash flood warnings right at the time of the Scotland tornado. And we saw uh, rotation gate to gate uh, on the radar. But need to watch it for another scan or two to see if it's really maintaining itself. And, uh, of course, that was the first one of the day, early in the morning. Not usually the best time, but it can happen uh, with a warm front and that kind of thing. Um, so they issued the flash flood warning and went back to the radar to investigate it further, and it was gone. <laughs> it was literally two or three scans, and... Um, as I say, we missed it. Um, uh, there was no severe thunderstorm warning. It was not a large complex. It was one isolated storm. Now, that said, um, the pump was primed, as it were, for the atmosphere, and uh, uh, that, that led to a development of was much longer-lived storm that went all the way from Situate, Rhode Island, to Weymouth, Massachusetts. And dropped four tornadoes along its path, and every one of them had a warning. Um, unfortunately, not in Scotland. So five that day, five that morning, were those other four related to the Scotland one? I know it's the same mm. system, but the Scotland one, did it break up and the other ones reformed? No, it was totally a totally separate storm. Uh, that mm -hmm. one kind of dissipated, and then this, this formed. Uh, but it's the same system that spawned them all right. All right, so Monday you came out and investigated, and what did you find that gave you the determination it was an EF-1 tornado? Okay, so, I mean, pretty much uh, the uh, survey, we have to give credit to the Connecticut Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security, who uh, did most of that survey, because we were in uh, Rhode Island, uh, they sent us uh, pictures and we conferred on it. Um, but basically, the tornado caused a lot of tree damage. Um, and it was very consistent. There wasn't much in the way of structural damage. There was some gutter damage to two homes. Um, but uh, there were probably over 100 trees that were downed. Um, and either downed or sheared off at their tops. And so that... It was clearly uh, tornado-like and the direction that they fell. And uh, so we categorized it based on the type of trees and the amount of damage as an EF-1 with speeds, uh, what was it here? Up to 100. <laughs> uh, up to, yeah, 100 miles an hour. Yes, you and I were talking. 90 to 100. You and I were talking the other day about a video that was, I guess, surveillance video from the Beaverbrook Saw Shop in Scotland. That was spectacular. It was great. And one of the things I want you to explain, maybe paint the middle picture for the audience, is that one particular instance with the wind shift. That was like in a span of seconds. It was amazing. If you've seen it, you go to about one minute in the video or one minute and five seconds, and you can see the flag. <laughs> and um, the flag shifts from 
blowing very strongly in one direction just instantaneously to the opposite direction in, indicative of the tornado circulation they so, had a string of lights almost like little christmas lights and about a minute in the video those things suddenly are on the pavement they blew off the building and uh, the other thing was that same flagpole you talked about had an american flag and then it had another flag below it almost like an orange flag and regardless of the direction they were blowing, the American flag survived. <laughs> the little orange flag did not. And uh, I was talking to uh, the, the woman who sent it to me, uh, Kathleen, who indicated that they later found the flag a ways away, stuck in a tree. So that wind from that tornado on Friday blew that flag totally off the pole. Just, just so you know, um, I mean, big tornadoes like uh, the Worcester tornado, for example, uh, in 1953, now, that was a 70,000-foot-tall storm, and <clears throat> frozen mattresses from, from Worcester were found in Boston Harbor as they'd been lifted up and deposited in Boston Harbor. So it can be incredibly powerful. Full disclosure that when something goes on around here, my phone rings. It's this guy. He calls me to see what I know. Now, sometimes I don't have to have actually seen the event, but he knows I have a network of weather weenies, <clears throat> weather watchers, who might have reported things to me. And from time to time, I contribute information that he needs to figure out what happened in this little nook of Connecticut here. Do you have a lot of these people around, Glenn, who give you information like I give you from time to time? We do, actually, but we can always use more. The Skywarn Weather Trained, trained Skywarn Weather Spotter Program. Uh, where you just report what happens at your house or at work. Um, we don't have an active system like the Midwest where they go out and spot for the day and quit their jobs and all the roads are north, south, east, west, and you can see for miles. Um, here, we've got trees in the way. That's why we need an awful lot of spotters. We have about 8,500 trained weather spotters across southern New England. Um, Realistically, we hear from just uh, maybe you know less than 10% of that in any given year, but um, uh, you can always use more. Well, it's not a secret that you don't always get it right, but there are sometimes you are spot on and you nail it. Do you have a story about maybe your best warning or best forecast in your time working with the National Weather Service? So... Um, I think my personal best warning uh, that I issued, I remember very clearly, on July 1st of 2013, uh, there was a tornado warning that I put out uh, for Windsor, Connecticut. Um, this happened very quickly, and um, this was actually just a couple weeks after EAS was, uh, the emergency alert system, was uh Put into effect. It was the first time that tornado warning alerted on everybody's phones. And so there was a soccer dome, I don't know if you remember, um, out in in Windsor, or East Windsor, I think it was Windsor. Um, but all the managers uh, got it all on their cell phones at the same time, and they were able to get like 25 kids to safety within two minutes. And there's video of it. Um, Crossing uh, 91, right? Wasn't yes. that the one that bounced across 91? Right. You can see uh, things flying in the air. Uh, and so uh, 
that that was a, a good success story, especially in the fact that everybody went to safety like they were supposed to, and with only less than two minutes of lead time. And you talked about the alerts going off, and that certainly is, I think, a, a big change in your job. In the last 10, 15 years or so, it's evolved that everybody has a phone, it seems that way, and most have smartphones. You know where I'm going with this, but just address the benefit that you have to get the word out, because that's your job, and that we all have now when something big is going on. I would say that that alert has come on my phone maybe five times now, including once when I was on the tee going to Fenway Park. Right. Yeah, so that's a huge, uh, uh, you know, success for us. Uh, Tornado warnings and flash flood warnings, uh, very short fused emergencies will go off. But be aware that severe thunderstorm warnings do not alert on the emergency alert system because there are so many of them across the country and we don't want to over alert people. But we do have the ability to activate that wireless emergency alert for ultra-severe thunderstorms. Very rare here in southern New England, but the kind that produce baseball-sized hail or 80-mile-an-hour wind gusts, um, we do get that maybe once every five to ten years. Um, then the, we can alert it for that. Glenn, have you yourself been like at the supermarket or something when your phone goes off, meaning somebody else triggered it? And yes. it's not just your phone. It's everybody in the store. Right. That's what happened to me on the T in Boston. I'm heading to a Red Sox game, and everybody on that subway car, their phones all went off at the same time. We did have a thunderstorm that was in the area. I, I should mention also that um, when this first started, um, they went off all the time for flash flood warnings, and that kind of irritated a lot of people. Um, at 3 o'clock in the morning in the entire city of Boston, for example, um, and uh, for a storm that might produce two or three inches of rain in a short period of time, but not really affect a whole large area of the city. And so I want to stress to people, so first of all, that's changed now um, nationwide. Uh, flash flood warnings have to be what are consi uh, considered considerable or catastrophic, not just the, how shall I say, ordinary flash flood warning to trigger the wireless emergency alert. Not that a regular flash flood warning isn't important, but um, so the, the meaning of a flash flood warning is different in different parts of the country, but um, when we uh, issue it, we're keeping in mind not just a lot of rain or localized street flooding, but that it's life-threatening, that if you drive in it, you're not just going to be inconvenienced, you're going to be floating away. And uh, that being said, does every smartphone get those alerts automatically, or do you have to set it up in settings to get it on your phone? No, it's automatic. Um, you have you can undo it, but you shouldn't. Well, Glenn, would that also appear on your wristwatch? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was showing off a while ago. What, tell people what you get on your on your on your watch. I've got there. the radar on my watch. There, there's a certain app that you can use that on, a certain type of watch. That's pretty cool. All right, so you had that great forecast in July of 2013, the soccer dome there in Windsor. Equal time, Glenn. Do you have a story about one of your worst weather forecasts or warnings? <laughs> well, there was uh, 
think it was back in 2009. I, I can't remember exactly when. Uh, there was Tropical Storm Danny that came by, and um, uh, I was working the midnight shift, and I was pretty sure that the storm had safely passed. So I put out a special weather statement that specifically said there's no more threat from Danny. And by the end of my shift, I was issuing tropical storm warnings because the darn thing went straight north into Nantucket. <laughs> well, and I've got one that was right around, uh, actually it was 10 years earlier, but I distinctly remember Edward. Does that one ring a bell to you? Because sure. I have a story about that. Yeah, that passed east of Nantucket. Right, but it was supposed to come up here, it and close. it took a right turn. Something made that shear off and go right, and it did, did bother uh, southeastern Massachusetts. But I was doing television for Nesson back then for the uh, Norwich Navigators, and they had a game. It was like Labor Day weekend, and they called it off. A lot of people called off events because of that. And at game time, on the day of the game, uh, it was sunny, like it is right now. So... Uh, I, so anyway, that I, that storm I remember. So you know what? It's an inexact science. You know, hey, look, Hall of Famers in baseball bat three fifty five and they get in. That means they make out sixty five percent of the time. So <laughs> we understand that thing. But it also uh, sets the stage for some funny stories, and you have humor stories. Do tell. Well, uh, yeah. So I that Edward reminded me of. Uh, one of the songs that we created. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I find that adding humor to presentations really gets people listening and um, and understanding it in a fun sort of way and maybe be able to take it, you know, uh, you know, learn more by, by doing that. So, um, <laughs> so, we went to, for example, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency at their annual or their, their quarterly meetings. And, and this was years ago, um, two decades ago. And the meetings were dreadfully boring. <laughs> I mean, everyone was sort of, you know, dozing off after the first five minutes. And so my colleague and I, Dave Valley, he sings, dances, plays the clarinet. He's a descendant of Rudy Valley. Um, and hi ho, Trudy Valley. <laughs> and uh, and I uh, said, how can we spice this up? So we we decided to create these songs. And so I'll give you an example of a couple of them that are stick in my mind. So first of all, with Edward, we had the uh, the Cape Cod Traffic Management Plan. Okay, the Cape Cod Traffic Management Plan song to. Uh, so, to the tune of Hey Jude, we kind of did uh, Hey John, because John was in charge at, at MEMA at the time. Uh, uh, I won't sing it. <laughs> so if I, Hey John, we were off by a smidge. Cars are piling up from Orleans to the Sagamore Bridge. And uh, uh, it went on like that. Um, the, the, there was a uh, operations chief named uh, Jerry Meister, may rest in peace, and um, he would keep all the presentations on time. And so by the time your, your talk was through, he'd, he'd be up to the front of the room, put his arm around your shoulder, and you knew your time was up. So we affectionately called that the Meister Walk. So to the tune of the Monster Mash, we did 
The Meister walked lurking in the corner of the conference room. Out stepped the figure of you-know-whom. He took one step and gave that look. We had a big picture of him up on the screen. That's when you knew your goose was cooked. He did the walk. Did the Meister walk. Time's come to end your talk. <laughs> That's good stuff. Do you have one on summer wind also? About uh, the, you know, the... Oh, yeah. Maestro of them all, Frank Frank uh, Sinatra. You know, with the summer wind, um, we we begin our hurricane presentations with that and damage photos timed to the music of the summer wind. And there's actually a picture of two people holding hands walking along the beach in front of all the devastation that just happened. And we time that so that it's just at the part where it says two sweethearts and the summer wind. <laughs> The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. All right, I had to squeeze that one in from Frank Sinatra and the summer wind with Glenn Field, National Weather Service Warning Coordination Meteorologist. Way back in 1990, you gave a talk about bloopers and the need to write clearly. And I think that's very important. So tell me the story behind that. You were listening at the beginning of the hour. We talked about getting into meteorology and how important English is. And so I feel very strongly about that. I actually gave a presentation at the American Meteorological Society, a, a collection. People sent me bloopers from all over the country uh, that the Weather Service had put out. And, and well-intentioned uh, calls to action for people. But one of them, uh, for example, said uh, for, a, for a flash flood warning, parents should closely monitor children playing near swiftly moving waters. I'm like, really? You know, there goes Billy. Um, just uh, don't keep them away from the water. Just closely monitor them. Or another great one that I liked is uh, vegetation that is damaged or killed by frost should be protected. Now, why do you want to protect something that's dead? Kind of the horse left the barn idea. I mean, yeah. You know, vegetation that's susceptible to being damaged. And then the, the one about the dog, uh, the, the family of four. Oh, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there, there was uh, just wrong word. Uh, large waves grabbed family of four and drugged them into the ocean. <laughs> the word is dragged, first of all, but um, there's got to be a better way to say it. Yeah, bad grammar. Hey, speaking of big storms, I don't know, I thought about this early on when you were just talking about weather in general, but if you had to rank the worst storms you've seen, what would they be? And I'm going to cheat here and say the blizzard of 78 pretty much retired the trophy in my book. But what are what are the worst storms that you've actually seen had the biggest impact on people, things like that? In New England? Yeah. Yeah, we're not counting Wisconsin or the other places. <laughs> well. You have a blizzard yeah. of 78 story? I actually did not live through the blizzard of 78 here. I was in oh. New Jersey. Um, oh. I, should, <laughs> I should have done the math on that based on your timeline from earlier. Yeah, but I've, that's a tough question. I mean, I think uh, uh, so in my career, we haven't had a hurricane because uh, uh, by far the worst storms that impact New England are hurricanes like the 1938 hurricane, but I didn't personally live through that. I'd say 
The worst one that I've seen is the Springfield Monson tornado back in 20, 2011, June 1st, 2011. That was an EF3 tornado with, uh, you know, just tremendous amount of damage on the ground for 38 miles. And you can see it from satellite all the way from, from uh, what was it, West, West Springfield all the way out to Charlton. It is especially noticeable in the wintertime because we had snow, right. like most winters, and you could see this path, that east-west path going across where there was no trees, and it was very white on that one little strip. Yeah, that's a good answer. That really was a, a severe uh, effort. Uh, to me, the Blizzard 78 was the granddaddy or grandma of them all. The other was uh, the Hurricane Gloria in 75, which predates your time here, too. Uh, but, 85, yeah. Uh, 80, thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. And yeah. To, to me, the, the thing about the Blizzard of 78, we've had other storms that had more snow. Some had significantly more snow, like the one that gave 40 inches or so down in Ansonia and Hamden in that neck of the woods a couple of years ago. But many, including that one, of our biggest storms have some kind of a weekend component. The blizzard of 78 began on a Monday mid-morning here, and they shut down the roads until Thursday afternoon. You couldn't drive, and that's the only storm that I've ever seen that happen in. And it infected people being able to go to work, go to school for the whole week. So that's well, one, one of the things we talk about was Hurricane Bob in 1991 was nothing more than a cluster of thunderstorms on a Friday afternoon down in the Bahamas where all the emergency managers went home for the weekend. It wasn't even a depression or anything at that point. And by Saturday, it was a Category 3 hurricane. And by Monday, it was in for breakfast and out for dinner, like most New England hurricanes. And so very little time to prepare. Um, things have changed a tremendous amount, you know, since since that time, uh, technology and whatnot. So, and, and the communications amongst uh you know, all, all of our emergency managers and the weather service is, is, you know, light years ahead of what it was back then. And so I don't think we'd have a situation where anything was possible. The like, center of Bob went over Newport, but I saw reports, plural, that New London had 125 mile an hour winds. So it's been 32 years since we've had a landfalling hurricane in Connecticut, albeit most of those high winds came in New London County. And the average... 13 years. Where have they gone? The weather's getting warmer. The water's getting warmer. Why are they missing us? Careful what you wish for. <laughs> I'm not wishing. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, we're due. Um, the average return period for hurricanes, if you look on the National Hurricane Center website, is 13 years uh, here in southeast New England. And the last one has been 32 years ago with Bob in 1991. And the average return period for a Category 3 hurricane, that's a major hurricane like Carol in 1954, that was the last one. That's uh, It's been 69 years since Carol. The average return period is 62 years. So we're not only due for a hurricane, but we're due for a major hurricane. Um, and... So I can't tell you whether it's this year or, you know, uh, we they, they come out with the numbers of expected storms, um, but that's kind of meaningless because it only takes one, right? Because uh, in 1992, I think there were only seven named storms. The very first one was Andrew. Um, on, and today, in, on today's date. Yes, in 1995, 
there were 19 named storms and none of them hit New England. So um, there are a lot of them out there. It's getting very active right now. The peak season is uh, August, September into October. And um, fortunately, as of right now, none of them are aiming for New England. Um, but uh, you would think intuitively that the the more there are, the better the chance of getting hit by one. It's funny, Glenn, that it seems like in the last couple of years, Connecticut has become the new Tornado Alley. That's a cliche that's been used by people other than me as well. But here we had five in the morning last Friday. We had last year the earliest on the calendar and the latest in the calendar, both up in northwest Connecticut. But uh, just throw a couple thoughts about uh, the return time on big tornadoes, not the smaller ones like the right. one in Scotland. If you were in it, you didn't think it was small. That was the F1. But right. you've got timetable on big tornado repeat times? So um, in general, um, I don't think that the numbers have been increasing. Um, I the I mean, we've had a few spin-off tornadoes from remnants of tropical systems that come. Those are the small ones, uh, very, very short-lived. Um, and um, the thing is, if you go back in history, it's about once every 10 or 12 years that there's a really big one. Let's look at the Worcester tornado of 1953. And then there was, uh, I think there was something in 1962, I can't remember. Um, but then... Uh, 1979, we had the uh, Windsor Locks uh, tornado destroyed the Bradley Air Museum. Developed uh, developed right over the airport too. You didn't have any warning on that one. Yeah, this is 1979, and then uh, 1989, the Hamden, Connecticut tornado, uh, and following that, uh, 1995 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, as uh, an EF4 tornado, uh, three people killed, 200 people injured. Um, and, um, where were we? Hamden got another one. Hamden uh, got two big ones because a friend of mine, my former Yukon partner, Bob Houston, was caught in both of them and he thought he was going to die. That's the one with the second one, I think, was the one that wiped out Sleeping Giant uh, State Park in Hamden, too. There was terrible, terrible tree damage there. So then so, we had the Springfield tornado in 2011, mm -hmm. which was 12 years ago. <laughs> so not only are we due for a hurricane and a major hurricane, but a big tornado. It's been in that 10, 12-year time frame now. Uh, and we're, by big, I'm talking like EF3 uh, on this, the Fujita scale, enhanced Fujita scale. And we touched on this earlier. I just wanted you to get an additional thought on it that it's unusual to get a tornado in the morning, especially in New England. We had the Scotland tornado last Friday, and that touched down at 7.53 in the morning. But what are the mechanics behind why most tornadoes are not in the morning? So most tornadoes occur during the maximum heating, uh, you know, in the late afternoon and early evening. That's when the majority are, but there is a subset of situations where you have a warm front coming up from Long Island and right into the south coast of New England. And it's usually just happens to be right around 6 a.m., 7 a.m. Uh, when it makes uh, makes it on, into southern New England. And um, so at that time of the morning uh, is, is a common occurrence for the warm frontal tornadoes. And um, how shall I mention that we're having another early morning warm front coming in tomorrow. It doesn't look as strong as last Friday, uh, but 
it's in the back of our mind. It's it's this time of year. It's warm, moist air. Uh, we have actually enough spinning aloft uh, tomorrow for the potential for severe weather, but not a lot of instability. But if it's just over that threshold, it could create some severe weather. So we'll be on the lookout tomorrow morning. How about just the definition of a lot of things that you deal with include the word severe. How do you, as a warning coordination meteorologist, define the word severe? Well, the National Weather Service has a very specific meaning for the word severe, and it has nothing to do with snow, even though a blizzard can be severe. It has nothing to do with rain, even though torrential rains and, and flash flooding is uh, has severe consequences, but actually it leads to a flash flood warning, not a severe thunderstorm warning. Um, to us, severe means large hail, that's one inch in diameter, the size of a U.S. quarter, or 58 mile per hour winds, either sustained or gusts, um, <clears throat> from a thunderstorm. And that's 50 knots, a knot is a nautical mile per hour, multiplied by 1.15, you get 58. 57.5 statute miles per hour. Anyway, uh, how about lightning? Lightning is not severe. Well, it's pretty severe to the people it strikes and can burn your house down to the ground. <laughs> but we wouldn't issue a severe thunderstorm warning just for lightning. And let me explain that one. Because um, as uh, weather killers go, the number one killer nationwide is flash flooding. Uh, that's why we have an expression, turn around, don't drown. Um, for lightning, we have all kinds of expressions. If you can see it, flee it. If you can hear it, fear it. When thunder roars, go indoors. Uh, very, very important thing. And it's the number two killer nationwide from uh, weather-related killers. So if it's the number two killer, why then don't we issue a severe thunderstorm warning for like a storm that has a thousand lightning strikes per second. <laughs> Maybe that's overdoing it, but a, a lot of lightning. And that's because what is it that causes the thunder? It's the lightning heating the air up to 50,000 degrees Celsius. And so when you heat the air, it causes a big expansion and a boom called thunder. And um, so by definition, every thunderstorm has lightning. That's what causes the thunder. So if lightning was a criteria then for a severe thunderstorm warning, we'd have to issue one for every thunderstorm. And nobody would believe us for the storms that have uh, the lar large hail-damaging wind, the structure that we talked about that could even cause a tornado. Um, so it's not to say it's not important, but it, it won't cause us to issue a severe thunderstorm warning. What it might do is prompt a special weather statement that this particular storm has a lot of lightning in it. Um, so uh, the best, uh, I can't stress enough how important lightning safety is because the statistics are way underdone, um, how many injuries there are for lightning. Because people get struck and they don't really realize until a couple weeks later that they're still having, you know, medical issues or even months or a year later. And so it never gets reported in the newspaper because uh, then they go to a doctor, um, you know, m many months or years later. And um, 
it, it's just so dangerous. We go out talking to campgrounds, and um, my son went to a, a wonderful camp up in New Hampshire, and they had a weather radio at the at the camp uh, office. They got everybody off the lake when there were thunderstorms around. Um, but then where did the kids go? They congregated by the bunks outdoors, uh, or they went in and took showers. That's not safe either. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, like, like a well-constructed house, for example. But, um, yeah, just, just I've seen so many injuries and so many people taking shelter underneath trees. Trees are the, the second worst place. The first worst place is uh, outdoors in uh, open parks and playgrounds. And um, if you're playing baseball, for example, and you can, if you can hear thunder, you're close enough to be struck. But you don't want to go into the dugout. That provides no protection. Um, you have to go inside a building. When thunder roars, go indoors. Uh, the only, the other, other safe place is in your car. And it's not the rubber tires that protect you. That's a fallacy. It's the metal hardtop of the car, which is, uh, acts as a Faraday uh, cage. If you've ever been at the Museum of Science, you've seen that guy inside the cage. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. But, um, but he's safe as long as he doesn't touch metal and travels along the outside of the objects. I'll tell you a weather story, severe weather story that you'll probably get a kick out of. So I'm a fifth generation Californian. We don't get many thunderstorms out there. I don't remember more than five in my life. Moved to Connecticut, live on a lake. My dad's a Navy man. We bought a sailboat, a sunfish, and I learned how to sail. And it didn't take too long for me to realize that the best times to sail are before or during a thunderstorm because the winds are so high. <laughs> And it wasn't until like three years later that my mom's best friend, who also lived on the lake, she says, that's not a good idea because, uh, you know, you're out there alone on the lake, you're a target for the lightning, and your mast for the sailboat is also a target for lightning. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, why wasn't I told this three years ago? I'm a dumb California kid who doesn't know about lightning and things like that. Mm. So then I learned, okay, wait for a windy day that doesn't include thunderstorms. Glenn, I'm sure in your 39 years with the National Weather Service in Boston, technology has made incredible leaps. Tell me how technology has changed during your weather career. So that is just an amazing question. Uh, I've seen, when I, when I first started working, we were actually um, running those, uh, what do you call them, little punch things through a teletype machine. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Um, obviously, computing power has, you know, grown by leaps and bounds at our national centers that run all the n numerical models. That have uh, The latest one is hundreds of petaflops. Uh, I don't even know what a petaflop is. I had to look it up. It's a, a, a quadrillion, which is, what, a thousand to the fifth power or ten to the fifteenth power, Something like that. Calculations per second. I mean, you like one of those for your house, probably. But um, and it still takes. So it's doing a quadrillion calculations per second, and it still takes an hour or two to run the uh, numerical model. That's how much goes into it. And it's amazingly accurate. I mean, there are some deviations. Um, 
So like if you were to drop a piece of paper on the floor from the same place exactly each time, it would land at different locations. And that's what we call, you may have seen on TV, like they refer to as the spaghetti models or different um, <clears throat> different ensemble forecasts. Um, so there, each model has like 100 variations to it. <laughs> and you take a consensus of them. And uh, so our probabilistic forecasts have gotten much better. You know, there's an 80% probability that that we'll have four or more inches of snow, um, things like that. Um, how about, uh, and, and, and even within the office, remember the old 286s and the floppy disks? And, uh, I mean, we have so much better computing power. Radar is something that's... Uh, unbelievable when i first started we we had to well everything was black and white and we had to manually stop the radar and then crank it up to whatever level you were looking at and then rotate it around and look at whatever feature you're looking at and looking for patterns like a hook echo we didn't have velocity like with the doppler radar so we couldn't see the actual rotation in the storms uh, we had to infer it from various shapes and um and so, meantime, while that's offline, um, it's totally offline. We can see it, but nobody out in the TV media could see it. And so there's big gaps in the data that they, they, all of a sudden, 12 minutes later, they, they get another picture. Um, so think about that. Now we have the Doppler radar. We can, as we talked about earlier, we can have not only the velocity, we can see the correlation coefficient, the spectrum width, all, all kinds of things um, that can help not only diagnose it. And I think back to your other question where we have so many, seemingly so many tornadoes now, some of that is because, or, or more warnings, because we can detect it better. We can see it better and we have 8,500 weather spotters that are also reporting it more. So it may seem like we have more than ever before, but it's probably not. It's just, um, you know, some things just went unreported. And from a technology standpoint, maybe you can address, too, the importance of satellite imagery. That these days, well, yeah. among other things, satellite imagery can show you where tropical systems, hurricanes, tropical storms are that maybe 60 years ago, uh, pre-satellites, yeah. you couldn't see. Well, actually, my dad, I talked about how he was a ship's meteorologist in the Navy. And back in the 1950s was when he was in the Navy. Uh, we had uh, 1954, we had Carol and Edna. 55, we had tropical storms, Diane and, and uh, Connie and Diane. And um, so he was part of that forecast. He actually got a commendation from the Admiral uh, for uh, forecasting the, the path of Hurricane Carol. And because um, uh, he was stationed in Newport. And um, <clears throat> so they needed to know whether to put the ships out at sea or keep them in Newport Harbor. And, of course, we had no satellite pictures, none. It was invented in 1960 or 1961 from the University of Wisconsin. They, that's where I went to school. They invented the weather satellite. And um, so now, yeah, the, the uh, uh, technology is just so advanced that you're getting uh, not only incredible resolution but different frequencies, microwave frequencies, and 
all kinds of things that can give you rainfall rates and just uh, and we can even get it uh, down to one minute uh, th- scan every minute I think hazel was 1954 also which would mean that southern New England had five named storms hit in a two-year span and we've had none for 32 years. I find that to be a stunning number. I also like to, to mention a lot of people ask, you know, along that line, uh, you know, things are getting so much worse, right? I mean, we have so many storms altogether. Now, climatology is a whole different profession, so I don't, I don't want to get into uh, climate change or climatology. It really is different. We try to get day one right in our job. <laughs> but, um, but that said... Things do happen in cycles. I mean, it was a pretty bad time frame. In 2011, we had the the tornado in Springfield. And then 2014, we had a revered tornado. 2015, we had 120 inches of snow. I didn't know where to put it all. I think back in 2011, we also had Irene and Snowtober, more than 30 inches of snow out in the Berkshires. So that was Sandy. Sandy, <laughs> that was a bad period. Um, but, you know, I had to do an interview about the Revere Tornado and how unusual is this in the Boston area. Well, the last one in the Boston area had been 1972 in Brookline. So they were due. It been over, what, 40 years. Um, how about, um, like you just said, 1953, we had the Worcester Tornado. 54, we had Carol, Edna, and what was it, Hazel? <laughs> 55. Connie and Diane, that was the worst flooding we've had in New England history. And speaking of flooding and speaking of those storms, one thing I think is really significant for this particular area is those five storms, three in 54 and two in 55, came just a matter of a couple of years after the completion of Mansfield Hollow Dam. Other parts of the state got devastated. Putnam was one of those. And we had flooding here, but it wasn't anything as bad as the rest of the state got because Mansfield Hollow Dam, which got to 60% capacity, protected us. Same thing happened in 1982. But they'd just been built, and then comes that run of storms we're talking about. Now, let's change gears a little bit here, Glenn. And uh, you talked earlier this morning about your theatrical experience <laughs> as a youngster, My Fair Lady and Oliver. But you also sang the national anthem at a weather ceremony? <laughs> Uh, it was our ribbon-cutting ceremony at our new office. We had moved from Taunton to Norton in 2018. And, uh, yeah, we had all kinds of dignitaries there. Uh, yeah, there was uh, uh, well, all town officials and, and uh, uh, representatives, Congress people. And um, so I volunteered to sing the national anthem. Uh, and I also recited the Pledge of Allegiance um, at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And and um, that I volunteered to do because um, my I had a teacher in, uh, in high school that, like, explained the Pledge of Allegiance in a way that we've never seen it. How many times do you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag... The United States of America, and to the Republic, stuff like that. Um, but actually, what you're pledging allegiance to are two things, uh, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the Republic, for which it stands. 
when you think about it that way, it's like, so I said it that way, and I actually had two people in there that said, wow, I never thought of it that way. And they now told their people in schools, you know, because it's not in Tudor Republic, it's, it's to the flag and the republic. <laughs> That's a great, great story. And you also talked about that happening at the dedication of the new office in Norton in 2018. We talked a moment ago about technology changes during your career. At the new office, do you have some technology there you didn't have in the old office in Taunton? Or is it all the same stuff, just got moved? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, technology is always changing. I mean, we have software upgrades, but it's pretty much the same. Although our situational awareness display, which is uh, uh, gigantic uh, TV screens, is much more sophisticated. So we can display up on our huge screens um, uh, whatever it is that is the problem of the day. We can divide it up nine ways, and we could be watching, for example, webcams. We can see uh, that rotate around how much we can see rip currents uh, along the coast. We can see the fog rolling into Logan Airport uh, on on webcams. That's just on one channel, and we can watch um um, I say TV, but it's um, really there for, like, uh, for example, New England Cable News, um, where anything news breaking in New England. Uh, we had a situation uh, maybe 10 years ago where there was a, uh, uh, a volatile chemical spill uh, or an explosion in Danvers, Massachusetts. And, um, and so we were able to call the emergency management officials and ask if they needed any support because we can run a uh, a dispersion model and see where the where the air is going uh, whether you know if there's any kind of uh, release of uh, chemicals in that case uh, the flow was northeast and everything was blowing toward Washington and channel 5 in Boston has a really good local program called Chronicle they've run it for decades uh, sadly, most of us around here don't get Channel 5 anymore on the cable, but uh, you were on that Channel 5 Chronicle program with a live town hall. Tell me that story. I was invited as a quote-unquote audience member. Uh, they asked me to bring along a weather radio, and if I got the opportunity, talk about you know how warnings go out on that and people can listen to the radio. Uh, uh, yeah, it was... It was um, uh, the governor... Uh, Mitt Romney at the time was uh, was the main uh, person. Uh, all kinds of uh, emergency officials from the city of Boston and and um, discussing what would happen in a particular scenario. <laughs> uh, I don't want to get into specifics, but it was kind of funny because um, I guess he hadn't been briefed on this scenario as much as uh, as we <laughs> had expected, and he changed it like. Um, within a minute before broadcast. <laughs> Glenn, you're hanging your barometer up. What do you do in retirement? Oh, wow. So my wife and I, my wife retired from the Brockton uh, school system this summer. So, uh, you know, I mean, I love this. As you can tell, I could do this till I'm 90, but um, body parts are already starting to fall off, and we want to travel. You know, before they all fall off, and and um, so a lot of traveling. Um, uh, we moved to a, a 55 plus community where there's all kinds of activities, um, 
you know, there's pickleball and outdoor swimming pool. I, I'd, ideally, I'd like to uh, day trade, maybe make $100 in the morning and then go out to the pool. No, but seriously, I am thinking of uh, taking a part-time job. Um, not in weather, actually. Just um, there's, a, there's an assisted living facility that's brand new right near where we live. And my mother just went through this whole, the whole realm from, uh, uh, you know, uh, independent living to assisted living to memory care. And so this is a brand new place and they just need a concierge to be friendly to people and, and make sure the cucumber water is fresh and turn on the, uh, the movie projector when it's movie time. And um, that's something I, I would like just doing something like that. Well, Glenn, I just looked around your chair. I didn't see any body parts, so nothing fell <laughs> off during this radio show. I might also add that the uh, National Weather Service, Boston, and for that matter, all of them, including New York, uh, their Facebook and social media pages, Twitter, they're pretty good, and they give you some good updated information that sometimes uh, you don't hear from other sources as well. And their website is excellent, too. Glenn, I appreciate your friendship over these years. I'll miss talking to you, but you've got good people that will be replacing you at the National Weather Service in Norton, Mass., including Rob, who I just was emailing a couple of days ago. So I uh, wish you well in retirement, and I really appreciate you coming in this morning to talk weather with us today. Thanks for having me on, and, and happy 53rd anniversary, too. That's quite an accomplishment yourself. Thank you, my friend. National Weather Service Warning Coordinator, Meteorologist Glenn Field on 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.